Well, about a decade ago, um, Greg Beal, a professor of uh, theology at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary in, um, in Los, uh, I think, Philadelphia, maybe. Maybe he's out in out west. I'm not exactly sure. But he, he wrote a book called uh, We Become What We Worship. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm really loud here. So uh, we become what we worship. And, and Beale's thesis is basically this, is that what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. And, of course, that's true of idols. It says in uh, Psalm 115 and verse 8, Those who make idols will become like them. So do all who trust in them. To make an idol, to worship an idol, you will become idol-like. What's true of ancient idols is true of modern idols today. If you worship money... And all that money can buy, you'll become a materialist. Thinking this world is about all there is. If you think about success and your own success and, and achievement, you'll become a humanist. Because that's where those things end. What you revere, you will resemble either for your ruin or for your restoration. And what's true of idols in a bad way is also true of the Lord in a good way. Romans 8 28 29 tells us that those who love God will be conformed to the image of Jesus. It's ultimately the hope of, of all of us who worship the Lord Jesus Christ. As we, as we worship Him, he'll, he'll transform us that we might walk in, in how He would have us to walk. We would walk like Him in, in holiness and purity and love and devotion. And what's true of worshiping deities is also true of worshiping leaders. Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. It's no accident that people in gangs are violent. Why? Because their leaders are violent. And it's no accident that many people who follow Gandhi tend to be meek and gentle. Because Gandhi was meek and gentle. And many children of alcoholics become alcoholics themselves. Because a disciple, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And followers of Jesus will be merciful because he himself, our leader, was merciful. You want to be merciful? Follow Jesus. Worship him. And we see that in our text this morning. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bible. And my, my Bible just kind of opens to Romans 12. I just kind of flick it here and here it comes. Oops, maybe that didn't quite work there, but... It is. It is. I'm I, I promising you. It's, it's there. This is my 13th message on Romans chapter 12. And uh, I, I anticipate just a few more, not, not a lot more. Uh, just we've been crawling through this chapter. Really, it is the application section of the book of Romans. And we don't want to, uh, to just let it pass us by so quickly. So we're just taking a, a thought for thought, verse by verse is really what we're doing week by week is what we've been doing. And, and this morning we come to verse 14 and it simply reads this way. This is up there on the screen. Let's all say it together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Say it again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. One more time. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, one of the things you might notice if you look in your Bibles, 
If you have an English Standard Version of the Bible, verse 14 begins a new paragraph. Now, the paragraph divisions aren't inspired at all, like the verses aren't inspired, chapters aren't inspired, like the numbers I'm talking about, but the paragraphs are there to guide us when a change in thought comes. And I think the ESV serves us well in the fact that 14 begins a new sort of theme, if you will. Both of these paragraphs, 9 through 13 and 14 until the end, both deal with with Christian living as all of chapter 12 has been. The ESV entitles it, The Marks of a True Christian. It's true. It's what what a Christian is like. It kind of just pictures what it is that we should be and do. And if you had me to pin me down on the uniting theme of 9 through 13, which we've been in for the last, whatever, six, seven weeks or so, I would call it this. I would call 9 through 13 as love. So let, let's, let's just read it together. Now, it's not all of it talking about love, but I think if you want to take one general theme out of it, I think love is a good way to do it. Paul writes, let love be genuine and pour what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In these verses, love is mentioned three times. Verse verse 9, let love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another. And verse 13, seek to show hospitality. Hospitality, remember from last week, literally means to love strangers. And so love is mentioned explicitly three times. And and furthermore, I I think you can argue well that several of these verses here um, just are an expression of love. Like like verse 10, showing honor is an expression of love. You want to lift up high those whom you love. Or or verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints as you seek to help others in need, you, you express your love for them. Now, admittedly, there are some Verses in here, like verse 12, which, which deals with rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, which deals more with trials. It's difficult to see how exactly that fits with love. And you can either try to cram that in there or just say, I'm not sure how that fits with love. But so many other verses speak about love. And when it comes to verses 14 through 21, I think a new theme emerges. And I think the theme here is mercy. Not because the word appears in this section, Because, in fact, it doesn't even once. But because the whole concept of mercy just just covers this section. Less in our verse today, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I think that's mercy, right? Bad things are coming upon you. You're not retaliating. You are instead giving them mercy. You're giving them grace. So maybe even that, some kind of better word, non-retaliation, maybe is what, what we mean here by, by mercy is what I'm talking about. Is that is it you're not going to fight them and punch them down. You're going to be gracious to them. Or another, verse 17 says like exactly the same thing. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When someone does evil towards you, the response here in verse 17 is, is called don't pay in kind. Right? Don't retaliate. No vengeance. Maybe that's what I'm trying to get at here with mercy. Do, do what's honorable. Just an, an expression of, of mercy. We see this in verse 18 as well. If possible, so far as it depends on, on you, live peaceably with all. Whenever you live with other people, you're going to live in, in community. There's going to be some conflict. 
And the only way to be peaceable is not to like hold these grudges and push it against them, but be merciful in your response towards others. Right? De-escalating the conflict rather than escalating it. In verses 19 to 20, we, we see the same concept. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For as written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's the same thought, right? When someone's hostile towards you, you're, you're not to avenge them. You to leave that to the, the wrath of God, right? Be merciful to them, right? Where everything in you says, no, you need to get them. Don't get them. And instead, bless them by giving them food and drink and demonstrating mercy upon their needs. Verse 21, exactly the same thing. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the way to overcome evil with good is by extending mercy to those who have done you evil. Now, of course, you saw some verses that I skipped that don't necessarily deal with this this same concept. But if you take 14 through 21 as a whole... I think it's all about mercy. It's all about non-retaliating, no, not avenging. And this week we're looking at verse 14. And we're just going to sit here. We're going to bask here. We're going to think about it. We're going to pray about it and just say, God, help us to do these things. Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. My message this morning is entitled, Bless Your Persecutors. That's what Paul calls us to do. He says, bless those who persecute you. He says, bless them. He says, do not curse them. You can say it's almost three times he's telling you to, to see those persecutors, those who are persecuting you. Well, well, bless them. Bless them and don't curse them, which is the same as bless them. So three times he's telling you to make this point. Now, notice here also that this isn't merely a call for non-retaliation. Okay? So it's not just, well, if someone who persecutes you, it's not bear it. It's not be quiet about it, but it, it, it's taking it up a step. And not, not just being silent and passive, but rather going above and beyond and actively turning to seek their goodwill instead, giving them what they don't deserve, which is kindness. Now, the application of this verse is really difficult, especially for us in America. Because in America the number of those who are persecuting us is small. In fact, I'd even press you this morning to ask you, who's persecuting you at this very moment? Can you think of a name? Can you think of a face of someone who's persecuting you? <clears throat> are there those in your life who don't like your Christian faith who are making your life difficult as a result? Now, I think in our political environment today, certainly the whole, the whole thrust of America is, is in many ways anti-Christian and, and hates Christians. But maybe just maybe then we should bless America, right? Bless and don't curse them. But maybe specific people. Are there specific people who've got, got your finger? My guess is that most of you struggle to come up with a name or a face. Maybe some family member, some of you. We come from a non-Christian family and they, they don't like what you're doing or your beliefs. Uh, maybe some neighbors who have different views than you have. Maybe they might be actively persecuting you. My, my guess is that you probably have a few in your life. And if so, they're, they're probably not, not quite as clear as they were in the days of Paul when the Roman army was going against Christians, when the Jews were going against Christians, tying them up, binding them. For them, it was really clear who their persecutors were. 
And, and furthermore, for us, it's, it's very interesting that to the extent that we walk with Christ, Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And the promise is you, you walk with the Lord. And the promise of 2 Timothy three twelve says, Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But there's also this balanced sense that if, if you're walking rightly with the Lord, even your enemies will be at peace with you. So there's this, this dual dichotomy of, of how, how the, these things work. and So it's hard to apply, first of all, because really our persecutors are few. But that, that doesn't let us off the hook, I don't think, in terms of applying this passage. Because I think that you can apply this passage with anyone with whom you have conflict. So you, you just think about who you have conflict with. Okay? And I bet lots of names and faces can come to mind. Brothers and sisters, think of your brothers, little kids, think of your brothers and sisters, right? You get some conflict there, right? Oh, and you're, you're shaking your head, right? I just know all of you children should be going like this. I know I have conflict, right? Good job, Sam, here. You just have conflict. Husbands and wives, you know anyone you ever have conflict with? Yes, right? And friends and neighbors and church people and... Um, maybe it's not persecution because it's coming from a friend, an enemy, but there's conflict nonetheless. And when you experience conflict, I think that we need to do what verse 14 says, right? Bless those with whom you have a conflict. Bless and do not curse them. I think that's a great application. In some regard, even that application is easier because we have conflict with friends and uh, Persecution deals with enemies. It's much easier to bless a friend than an enemy. That's what it is. Okay, well, a second reason why this verse is difficult is because it goes contrary to our nature. I mean, by nature, we want to stand up and, uh, and protect ourselves. We want to retaliate. If someone strikes us physically, what do we want to do? We want to retaliate physically. If someone strikes us verbally, we want to talk back with them. If someone is hurting us emotionally, we want to emote back to them and get at them. But Paul says, no, that's not the way to respond. The way to respond is by mercy. We should bless them instead. Now, it's not just not Paul. Paul learned it from Jesus. You can turn your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You go right back there. There's this section where Jesus says almost exactly the same thing as Romans 12, verse 14, right? When someone does you wrong, not only just bear it, but go back and give them good instead. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, leave him to have, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is what Jesus calls us to do. When we're wrong, not just to take it in silence, but return good in blessings and abundance. And he gives us five hypothetical situations. The first is, is physical. If someone slaps you. Okay, someone slaps you. What are you doing? Well, if you're anything like me, you know I recoil and I regroup. 
and then there's a strike back. That, that's how it always is. Maybe you see that on the athletic field. A person is tripped or elbowed or, or hurt in some way. And then a, a fight ensues and punches begin to fly and, and benches are emptied. It's just the, the natural response. And Jesus says, no, no, no. We respond differently in the kingdom. He says, when we're slapped on one, we turn the other. In other words, you say this, well, if you really want to hit me, here, try this one. You give him a better shot. You give him a bigger aim. I think that's mercy. It's being gracious. The second hypothetical, if anyone sues you, this is legal. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, your tunic's like your, your shirt. And I know my response. If someone wants to, to sue me to take something of mine, I will fight hard what's rightfully mine. I'll clutch it in my hand. I'll keep it. But Jesus puts forth another way. He said, hold your possessions loosely. And if someone needs your shirt, give him your coat also. Like, now, like, oh, you want my shirt? And by the way, it's a pretty desperate situation if someone wants your shirt. If someone wants your shirt, give me your shirt. Give me your coat also. Go home cold for a day because you have some more at home. The third hypothetical situation is when Jesus gives um, <clears throat> a, a picture from servitude. If anyone forces you to go a mile, it clearly goes back to the days of the police state or the slave state when authorities could compel you into service. Um, maybe a master who sends you on an errand a mile away to retrieve something, or maybe a military authority who comes and presses you into service. Maybe you remember when Jesus was carrying his cross to Calvary, but he was too weak to go on. Remember what the Roman officials did? They surveyed the crowd and found a particularly strong man or available man. And he just said, you, Simon of Serene, you carry his cross. And the guy was maybe out shopping with his family or something. All of a sudden compelled into service. He had no choice. And surely it was convenient, unfair, it disrupted his plans. But the authority was able to do that. And there's something that doesn't seem right. That was the police state in biblical times. In, in more times that that happened... I'm not sure what happened so much today because it's whatever. In the Civil War, though, Civil War army comes in, right? Even enemies, they just take your house and use your house for command center for some time. They'd sleep in your bed and then they would move on. And Jesus says, rather than resisting their crust, embrace it and go the extra mile. Go above and beyond. Go two miles. The fourth situation, he talks about a beggar on a street asking you for something. And Jesus says, right, give to the one who begs from you. And I know that's not my first response. My first response is judgmental. Knowing the person in the street is only on the street because they have, um, whatever, neglected all the help along the way. Um, there's been family that's helped. There's been friends that's helped. There have been shelters that's helped. There have been nothing. In fact, I know there was a guy who came to our, our church recently and looking for something. I directed him to a place that would help. He said, oh, no, I can't go there, I can't go there, I can't go there. Right? They only helped me once. Like, isn't that the point, right? Where it's genuine help. And uh, that was my help I was offering him, but he wanted money. And I wasn't going to give that to him. Maybe I've denied this. But that's my first inclination, is to, is to take steps not to give to the one who begs. But Jesus says, do it, give it. I sought to give, and this man refused what I had to give him. The fifth example that Jesus has to do is if your friend asks you, if someone asks to borrow something from you, let him borrow. And, and of all the examples that Jesus gives, I think this is the easiest, right? The implication of borrowing is it's going to return back to you. 
And furthermore, the implication is that it's a friend because you're going to see him again. He's going to get it back to you as well. But in the spirit of Jesus' words, I can foresee where this is difficult. Now, it's helpful here to remember the context because these five examples are for what perfect righteousness looks like. He sums up the section of the Sermon on the Mount with these words, Matthew 5, 48. You can just look down there. It says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what Jesus is doing here is intentionally stretching us and showing how we lack in doing these things. Because it's the same context in, in chapter 5 and verse 21 where Jesus equates anger with murder. He says you're angry with someone, you're, you're guilty of murder. And going down beginning of verse 27, he, he equates lustful intent to the heart with adultery. You do that in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. In the same context, he says in verse 37, just let, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything else more comes from evil. In other words, don't try to play games with those. Don't try to sidestep your words. Just yes or no. Be upfront and totally honest with everyone who ever asks. And what Jesus is trying to do is show us our sin. Chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, on one regard, that's hard. and the other regard, that's easy. It's hard because these Pharisees knew the law really, really well and worked really, really hard to keep all the law. You can't, you can't be better. And then, you know, on the other hand, their, their obedience, their righteousness was all external, which meant it was nothing. So it was easier on one hand and harder on another. But Jesus getting at this, we need help. We need a Savior trying to drill us down to show that that what Jesus is driving in his sermon is that that you need someone bigger than yourself. And the good news is that we do have a Savior. His name is Jesus. In fact, that's the whole context of Romans chapter 12. You can turn back there to Romans chapter 12. We've got to come back to verse 1. Because verse 1 is is the hinge of all of, of Romans and it is the very verse that, that helps us and gives us power and, and shows us of where we stand as we seek to show mercy to others. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, we've been shown mercy at the cross of Jesus Christ. By the mercies of God. So the wages of sin has earned us death, but God in His mercy and His grace has given us eternal life in Christ Jesus. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says precisely, when we were His enemies, He reconciled us to God by the death of His Son. When we were persecuting Jesus, when we were hating Him, right? Saul, remember on the road to Damascus, and, and he was persecuting the church, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? At that moment, God was merciful to Saul. It's true mercy when he was rebelling against the Lord. right? And when we were rebelling against the Lord, it's that point, that time, that God just not, didn't just kind of take it passively, but he took it and he took it a step further. And, and we who deserve to die for our sins, not only were resolved of our sins, but he gave us righteousness. So he like did this doubling thing. He took away our sin. By grace, and then he gave us his righteousness that comes by faith, those who just believe and trust. And here it is, Romans 12, 1. Because we've been shown mercy, we are able to give mercy. And that's where the strength comes. A great example of this was Stephen. He was one of the seven chosen in the congregation, appointed by the apostles to serve the widows. 
there in Jerusalem and they, they didn't like the message of Jesus. And so they rose and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was seeking, speaking. And so they seized him, brought him before the high priest, accused him. And the high priest turned to him and said, Stephen, are, are these things so? And he began to speak about the way that God worked through history. And he says that these people, you know all now, you, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one. And he called them, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised heart and ears who always resist the Holy Spirit. And they didn't like that message, of course, because no one likes to be called stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. We don't like to be called resisting the Holy Spirit. And so they did as they picked up stones and went to stone him, went to clobber him over the head with that and his dying breath. Remember what Stephen said? He said, Lord, do not hold this against them. That's Romans twelve fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And I just say this, the only way that you can ever hope to do this is knowing mercy at the cross of Christ. It's the only way. I said, do you know this mercy? Do you know your sin and have you understood what your sin brings you to before God? And then have you seen how you who deserve judgment get mercy instead? How you who deserve to suffer pain and sorrow for eternity have been made righteous simply by faith in God? That's the very thing that empowers you then to be able to do this with others. Do you believe that Christ died for your sins upon the cross? Do you believe He was merciful to you? It's the only way you'll ever be able to live 1214. Because when God has been merciful to you, it's all resolved. You don't have to avenge others. If God has dealt with me, God will deal with others. It's the only way to follow Paul's command to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, one of the things I am encouraged with is that Paul who's commanding these things, didn't quite live them out all the time. I think he, he struggled with this as well. So think about um, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas, they're on their missionary journey. Um, they're, they're visiting in churches, and now they're going on to, to spread the gospel further. They come to Philippi. There's a custom is to go to a synagogue and preach Jesus, but there's no synagogue there. So they went down by the river. There's a place of prayer and met a few women and preached the gospel. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the things that Paul spoke. And soon after that, there was a, a slave girl who was able to tell the future um, because of this demonic uh, influence in her life. And Paul cast the demon out of that, that girl. And soon afterwards, the owners of that girl saw that their hope for profit was gone and that Paul was the means by which um, he, he rid them of this hope. So they seized Paul and Silas, brought them before the silver magistrates, and, and they gave orders to beat them with rods and throw them in prison. So here's Paul and Silas in prison, suffering unjustly. And I think they were content because they were praying and singing hymns to God. And then the earthquake came, and the jailer came to faith. And, and that whole deal. And then the next morning, when it was day, Acts 16.35, when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take, them, take us out. You see what he's doing? Here's a situation where he was persecuted clearly. And did Paul bless and not curse? I think he 
curse them. It's pretty, pretty hard, right? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Pointing out the injustices that come upon them. And they're saying, no, they've got to come and, and make the rights wrong, make the wrongs right. Rather than responding in mercy and going quietly, rather than giving gifts to them on the way out of town, they made a scene. He pointed out the injustice would take place, demand an apology. And, and I think this shows difficulty in applying these words. Because maybe Paul's actions demonstrate exactly how we should apply these words. We don't need to be doormats. We don't need to be stepped on by everyone. There's a time and a place to stand up for our rights. But there must always be the merciful heart. Paul's exit from the city of Philippi maybe demonstrated this heart. It says... Acts 16, 38 through 40, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So from all appearances, Paul and Silas left in peace. Maybe they did give them gifts on the way out the door. Maybe they gave them some blessing. I don't I don't know. But I think it was a struggle. I think it's difficult how, how it is that we ought to respond to those who persecute us. Because God, God doesn't call us just to play dormant and quiet. There's no work to be bold as a lion with the gospel of Christ, for sure. And, and to stand for righteousness. Uh, but this wasn't the only time. Paul, another time, failed, I think, in some regards to keep these words. Maybe remember the time when Paul's um, coming back to Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. He had some funds. And uh, he collected it from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, and he gathered them. He wanted to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost when all the people around the world would, would come to celebrate the feast. And, and he got there, and he distributed these funds. At one point, he's in the temple, and a few Jews stirred up this riot. They said in Acts 21, 28, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against this people, against the law, and against this place. Right? This is a summary of what Jesus Against this law, against his people, against his place. He's just basically saying against the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. And against the people because it's opened up to Gentiles now. And against this place because Jerusalem is not the only place you need to worship. And hearing this, the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple and seeking to kill him. Now fortunately, the Roman soldiers watching probably from the Antonio Palace, saw what was taking place and went down and got him and rescued him from the crowds. But before being taken into the Roman jail, Paul was able to address the people, explaining his testimony, what the Lord had done in his life. But the crowds were not convinced. They said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so Paul was sent to spend a night in the jail. And then he sat down before the council the next day to give his offense. He said, looking intensely at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience and up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. How dare you say you've kept a good conscience until this day? And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you're ordering me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you revile the high priest? And Paul went, I didn't know that he was a high priest. For it's written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, so is that turning the other cheek? Paul literally slapped on the cheek in the mouth. Want to follow Jesus, you want to turn the other cheek, right? Is that blessing those who persecute you? I mean, that's, 
That's a curse if anything is a curse. He says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I mean, that's like, that's like a curse. Is, is he blessing those? He's being persecuted. And is he blessing or is he not cursing? Well, Paul's apology here is, is commendable. But it's interesting, right, to, to dissect his apology. He didn't apologize because it was wrong to persecute those who are wrong to curse those who are persecuting you. But Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that this was the high priest. You should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. His apology was toward the one that he cursed, the high priest. We all, oh, we're not to curse him. Kind of like excusing cursing, but just not if it came from him. And so again, we get this conundrum. So is, is Paul seeing himself wrong in standing for righteousness and pointing out sin? Because there's a way, right? Second Timothy chapter 3 speaks about how, how the scriptures are useful for for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We have our kids. We need to correct them. We need to reprove them. There is this way where just not all comes mercy. There's this, this, this balance of how it works. Even Jesus himself, the most merciful man who ever walked on the planet, Matthew 23, cursed the Pharisees with woe upon woe upon woe upon woe upon woe. Was he blessing those who persecuted him? So I just I, I put that out there for you, and, and here, here's what I think. I, I think Paul's command here is to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Is um, is oftentimes what we call forgiveness, right? It just means like like let it go from you. Okay, forgiveness though, by the way, is a it's a transaction of a of a, a confession of sin, apology. But but a lot of times people talk about you know someone did something wrong to you, you just need to let it go. You just need to bless them. You need to seek their good and their welfare is a much better way to do that. So that you can say what Stephen did. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He didn't go to his grave a bitter man at what they had done to him. He, he had it free and, and released. So I don't know if Paul is, is, is sinless in these places, but it just shows the, the tension of how it is that we should live. We, we should live in a place that even our enemies... We should heap kindness upon them. And we're going to see that again and again over the next couple of weeks. But one of the things that really encourages me is how, how Paul struggled with this, right? He, or how he, how he didn't um, fully do this all the time, perhaps, to the, the letter of the law. Because for the most part, as I've had enemies, I've not responded in this way. Uh, I, I do remember one time, okay, here's my hero story. All right? Don't think I'm a hero in this, but here's my hero story. I, I was working on an occasion of... Before, as a full-time pastor, worked in a hospital. And there was his co-worker, far from God. He drank to excess, I'm sure. I mean, he was using drugs, I'm sure. Uh, something came up about uh, Nepal one time, and he really wanted to go to Nepal because you know what happens in Nepal. Right, where the holy men are drug addicts because <laughs> they can spiritually commune. And he was really interested in going. And, and um, I, I remember... My boss, I was told, I wasn't here, but my boss was walking in to this conversation that co-workers were having about my religion, quote-unquote. And uh, my boss stood up for me. I don't know what was said, but he said these types of conversations must stop. And he kind of rebuked people in my office for me. And uh, I remember over the next year, there was more peace between me and my co-worker. The annual review came from between me and my boss. I gave a good report, an overflowing report about this one coworker who was particularly reviling me that day, that time, kind of that, that season as he made fun of me. And uh, 
Subsequently, then my boss relayed to my coworker about the blessing that I had given, and he was very thankful for me for that. And just, there, was, there was peace among us. That when your ways are right for the Lord, Proverbs 16, 7, as I quoted before, even your enemies become at peace with you. But that's like the one time I can remember being persecuted and, and really blessing those who were persecuting me. Because I, I, I've not been persecuted much. Now, as a pastor, certainly I have conflict. It goes with the territory. Um, in fact, that goes with any territory. Any pastor is going to face a lot of conflict. And, and I've had people upset with me. I've had people falsely accuse me. I remember one time being accused of sending people to spy on others' conversations so they can like figure out what's going on and then get back to me. And I was like, this, this person right confronted me with that. Oh, and you send spies out, Steve. I'm like, you know... <laughs> That is so absolutely untrue. And he's kind of like, yeah, okay. And kind of went on. Like, like no remorse or anything there. I have had people yelling at me, not happy with me. I remember talking with a guy on the phone. Um, he's there at home just yelling. And I said, you know what? How about if we just pray together? And I, with my phone, I got down on my knees. He said, no, don't pray. Don't pray. Don't pray. And I said, yes, let's just pray together just that God might help us with this. And I started praying and he hung up the phone. Okay, um, that was someone who, if you, most of you don't know who that was, but that was someone you might look up to and respect. Um, in fact, I, I've it's kind of goes with the territory. I've had people angry with me. In fact, I've, I remember a while back, those who've been here more than a decade remember a, a whole email went out. Right, weekly word, reply to all. Steve is such a big liar. Don't trust him. We're not coming back until he repents. It's like. So I'm thinking about that. Okay, so, so how, do I, how do I respond that way? And, um, you know, to respond would have been maybe calling the person and saying a blessing to them or helping them. Or, I didn't do that. I just kind of did halfway. I, I was just silent, didn't retaliate, didn't defend myself. I trusted the Lord to deal with things. And the Lord did. Verse 19 is so true. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Certain vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And, and by the way, this person who sent this email um, went off and uh, then was saved later and has never come back and said anything to me, has never really sought that reconciliation or maybe doesn't even realize what, what it was. But that's, that's the month when our church decreased by about half, maybe a third, because of that email. And I just said that was one of the most blessed times I've ever had as a pastor because that went out and there was troubles in the church. Just put a line right in the church. Are you in? Are you out? And uh, we saw those who came and encouraged and we saw those who were hostile and, and they left. And, and that was okay. And, but I, I'm struck by this that I was, I was more, more quiet rather than maybe actively blessing. And I see my, my own failures in that. But what's always struck me, though, is, is this. Pastors play by different rules. I'm not sure you know this or realize this. That pastors play by different rules. Or, uh, I mean, if, if I would accuse people falsely, or if I would yell at people, or if I would send nasty emails and texts, I wouldn't be a pastor for long. Because I'm a man of God, so people think, all right? So I'm this righteous one who does this, and they can't do that. I mean, that, that sort of behavior would not be excused. The, whatever I did, whatever voicemail I left, whatever email I sent, would be suddenly public and shared by many, many people. Let everyone know what a sinner this pastor was. And I'd be done because 
You, you can't do it. They can say it to me. I can't say it to them. I remember talking with a, a, a long experienced pastor who, who just said, you know what? It's just different rules. You can't, you, you can't do the things that people can do to you, speaking the other way. But, but listen, what I'm saying is that applies to you too. When it says, bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse, you're not on the persecuting end. You're on the persecuted end. And you need, as you deal with other people, to play by those same unfair rules. You can't, you can't do that. You need to be one who's blessing, who's encouraging, who's not worried about your own reputation. Remember in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul's defending himself. He says, okay, these super apostles lift themselves up. He says, I'm, I'm being really foolish here, but I'm going to... I really shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. He lifts himself up and shows all of his qualifications. And he says, it's a foolish thing to do. Because God's the one who's going to, going to help. We play an unfair game. The world may scoff and sneer, but we're called to extend mercy. You, you know that, that hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal? Let me just read it for you. The Lead On, O King Eternal, the day of march has come. Henceforth in fields of conquest, your tents will be our home. And this talk in particular was, was composed in a seminary setting right at graduation. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. So you say, how is it that we battle? Stanza two, lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums. With deeds of love and mercy, your heavenly kingdom comes. So you want to bring in the kingdom, Jesus said, right? Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. And, and those who live by, by loud cursings on others are going to die by loud cursings upon others. But it's love and mercy. It's deeds of love and mercy that our heavenly kingdom comes. Well, I began my message with this quote from Greg Beale. We become what we worship. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. And if you ever have hopes of being merciful, if you ever have hopes of being this blessing to people rather than this cursing upon people, I just say you've got to, you have to worship the merciful one. You have to worship Jesus. Because we will become what we worship, either to our ruin or our restoration. So worship Him. And Jesus indeed was merciful. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. This is the scene in which Jesus, I think, showed his mercy, non-retaliatory spirit and heart as much as, as ever. This was the scene of the crucifixion, and this transitions us nicely into the Lord's Supper as we think about what Christ did for us upon the cross. He says in verse 32, there were two others who were criminals who were led away to be put to death with him. And when they come to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him. And one of the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And here it is, verse 34. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's hanging on the cross in great pain, being persecuted, if you will. And what's he doing? Yes, he was quiet when they rebuked him, right? When they reviled him, he didn't revile in return. But here we see him going that extra mile, and not only just taking and bearing, as he was bearing our sins, right? but he's also bearing the insults of people. But at this point, he goes overboard like Paul tells us to. 
bless those who persecute you. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a, that's a blessing. That's a, a prayer to God, exactly like Stephen. Where do you think Stephen learned it? He learned it by worshiping Jesus, right? We become like what we worship. So I just encourage you, just think about the Lord Jesus. He is the merciful one. He is what we need to become like. So let's pray as we bow our heads and think about celebrating the Lord's Supper. We celebrate this fact that Jesus upon the cross was indeed bearing our sins for us. And as the Apostle Paul says, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ought to examine ourselves. I just encourage you to examine yourself in light of this text today, just about about your own attitude and disposition towards others, towards your enemies, towards your your friends. Are you one who seeks to return evil with good? Are you one who doesn't retaliate, but you respond with honor? You respond with blessing? And the only way we can do that is if we know our sins are, are forgiven and dealt with. We don't have anything to defend in ourselves because Christ has accomplished all for us. He's accomplished it all for us at the cross of Christ, which is where our, our strength is. So I just encourage you even now just to, to focus or confess any sin of your failures maybe in this area and, and realize that we, we won't walk perfectly, but we need help, we need grace to be those who would, who would understand God's mercy to us and extend that freely and overflowingly to others. So where the Lord convicts you, just just say, God, I, I, I need your grace, the cross of Christ, and I'm just trusting in you. And eating the bread and drinking the cup doesn't save us. There's no magic in the cup or in the, the, the bread. But what is magic is that Christ gives us grace through faith in him. That's where the magic lies in the and the, the Lord suffers for those who believe. So if you're with us today and don't believe, just, just let the cup and the bread pass. But if you're believing and trusting in the Lord, by all means, take this as a symbol. Just say, Christ, I, I am trusting you. And I am in need of your grace. And God, I would pray that you would be with us. You'd fill us and encourage us this time as we look to the place where our strength is and can be found, which is only at the cross of Christ.